Section 150 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 150. The Penguin's Rock. This is the season for penguins. From April to the end of May, before the Parisian visitors arrive, one sees, all at once, on the little beach at Etretat, several old gentlemen, booted and belted in shooting costume. They spend four or five days at the Hotel Hovia, disappear, and return again three weeks later. Then, after a fresh sojourn, they go away together. One sees them again the following spring. These are the last penguin hunters, what remain of the old set. There were about twenty enthusiasts thirty or forty years ago. Now there are only a few of the enthusiastic sportsmen. The penguin is a very rare bird of passage with peculiar habits. It lives the greater part of the year in the latitude of Newfoundland and the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. But in the breeding season, a flight of emigrants crosses the ocean and comes every year to the same spot to lay their eggs, to the penguin's rock near Etretat. They are found nowhere else, only there. They have always come there, have always been chased away, but return again, and will always return. As soon as the young birds are grown, they all fly away and disappear for a year. Why do they not go elsewhere? Why not choose some other spot on a long, white, unending cliff that extends from the Pas de Calais to Havre? What force, what invincible instinct, what custom of centuries impels these birds to come back to this place? What first migration, what tempest, possibly, once cast their ancestors on this rock? And why do the children, the grandchildren, all the descendants of the first parents always return here? There are not many of them, a hundred at most, as if one single family, maintaining the tradition, made this annual pilgrimage. And each spring, as soon as the little wandering tribe has taken up its abode on the rock, the same sportsmen also reappear in the village. One knew them formerly, when they were young, now they are old, but constant to the regular appointment which they have kept for thirty or forty years. They would not miss it for anything in the world. It was an April evening in one of the later years. Three of the old sportsmen had arrived. One was missing, Monsieur Darnell. He had written to no one, given no account of himself, but he was not dead like so many of the rest. They would have heard of it. At length, tired of waiting for him, the other three sat down at the table. Dinner was almost over when a carriage drove into the yard of the hotel, and the latecomer presently entered the dining room. He sat down in a good humor, rubbing his hands, and ate with zest. When one of his comrades remarked with surprise at his being in a frock coat, he replied quietly, Yes, I had no time to change my clothes. They retired on leaving the table, for they had to set out before daybreak in order to take the birds unawares. There is nothing so pretty as this sport, this early morning expedition. At three o'clock in the morning, the sailors awoke the sportsmen by throwing sand against the windows. They were ready in a few minutes and went down to the beach. Although it was still dark, the stars had paled a little. The sea ground the shingle on the beach. There was such a fresh breeze that it made one shiver slightly in spite of one's heavy clothing. Presently, two boats were pushed down the beach by the sailors, with a sound as of tearing cloth, and were floated on the nearest waves. The brown sail was hoisted, swelled a little, fluttered, hesitated, and swelling out again as round as a paunch, carried the boats towards the large arched entrance that could be faintly distinguished in the darkness. The sky became clearer, the shadows seemed to melt away. The coast still seemed veiled, the great white coast, perpendicular as a wall. They passed through the Manport, an enormous arch beneath which a ship could sail. They doubled the promontory of La Courtine, passed the little valley of Antifer and the cape of the same name, and suddenly caught sight of a beach on which some hundreds of seagulls were perched. That was the penguin's rock. It was just a little protuberance of the cliff, and on the narrow ledges of rock the birds' heads might be seen watching the boats. They remained there, motionless, not venturing off to fly off yet. Some of them perched on the edges, seated upright, 
looked almost like bottles, for their little legs are so short that when they walk they glide along as if they were on rollers. When they start to fly they cannot make a spring, and let themselves fall like stones almost down to the very men who are watching them. They know their limitation, and the danger to which it subjects them, and cannot make up their minds to fly away. But the boatmen began to shout, beating the sides of the boat with the wooden boat pins, and the birds, in a fright, fly one by one into space until they reach the level of the waves. Then, moving their wings rapidly, they scud, scud along until they reach the open sea, if a shower of lead does not knock them into the water. For an hour, the firing is kept up, obliging them to give up, one after another. Sometimes the mother birds will not leave their nests and are riddled with shot, causing drops of blood to spurt on the white cliff, and the animal dies without having deserted her eggs. The first day, Monsieur Darnell fired at the birds with his habitual zeal, when the party returned toward ten o'clock, beneath a brilliant sun which cast great triangles of light on the white cliffs along the coast, he appeared a little worried and absent-minded, contrary to his accustomed manner. As soon as they got on shore, a kind of servant dressed in black came up to him and said something in a low tone. He seemed to reflect, hesitate, and then replied, No, tomorrow. The following day they set out again. This time Monsieur Darnell frequently missed his aim, although the birds were close by. His friends teased him, asked if he were in love, if some secret sorrow was troubling his mind and heart. At length he confessed. Yes, indeed, I have to leave soon, and that annoys me. What? You must leave? And why? Oh, I have some business that calls me back. I cannot stay any longer. They talked of other matters. As soon as breakfast was over, the valet in black appeared. Monsieur Darnell ordered his carriage, and the man was leaving the room when the three sportsmen interfered, insisting, begging, and praying their friend to stay. One of them at last said, "'Come now, this cannot be a matter of such importance, for you have already waited two days.' Monsieur Darnell, altogether perplexed, began to think, evidently baffled, divided between pleasure and duty, unhappy and disturbed. After reflecting for some time, he stammered, "'The fact is—the fact is—I am not alone here. I have my son-in-law.' There were exclamations and shouts of, "'Your son-in-law? Where is he?' He suddenly appeared confused, and his face grew red. "'What?' You do not know? Why, why, he's in the coach house. He's dead. They were all silent in amazement. Monsieur Darnell continued, more and more disturbed. I had the misfortune to lose him, and as I was taking the body to my house in Brisevia, I came round this way so as not to miss our appointment. But you can see that I cannot wait any longer. Then one of the sportsmen, bolder than the rest, said, Well, but since he is dead, it seems to me that he can wait a day longer. The others chimed in. That cannot be denied. Monsieur Darnell appeared to be relieved of a great weight, but a little uneasy nevertheless, he asked. But frankly, do you think... The three others, as one man, replied, Parbleu, my dear boy, two days more or less can make no difference in his present condition. And, perfectly calmly, the father-in-law turned to the undertaker's assistant and said, Well then, my friend, it will be the day after tomorrow. End of section 150 Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.